Hi there, I'm Steve Hackett. You're listening to Talking Blues. Steve, what part of the world am I talking to you at? Uh, I'm in a suburb of London, England. Uh, it's called Teddington. And, and uh, it, it's on the Thames, and that's where I am. What's the situation with the pandemic like these days in London? Uh, well, um, yes, I mean, it, it, it's hit very hard. Um, people are still dying from it. Um, I am double vaccinated, as is my wife and most of my pals. And we're probably going to get a booster at some point after I undertake my first tour for 18 months because we were not allowed to tour anywhere. Um, but I'll be touring in just a couple of weeks, just over a couple of weeks. On the 10th of September, I, I do uh, a UK tour, 30 dates up and down the country. Uh, it's pretty ex extensive. This is touring behind your brand new album. It's behind that. And also I'm doing, um, I'm doing a Genesis show. I'm doing uh, Seconds Out in its entirety and full-length versions of those tunes. So uh, it's both solo and it's also uh, retrospective. Wow. Um, great album, by the way, the new album. Thank you. It's amazing to me how productive you've been over the last 18 months. Yes, it's been a very productive time. Uh, there has been no opportunity or distraction to do live gigs. And um, so everything has really gone into recording, lots of different things. Uh, there was a live album, uh, which was the Selling England by the Pound show meets Spectral Mornings. There was a, an autobiography called The Genesis in My Bed. Um, these have all been released in, in the last 18 months. Uh, um, under a Mediterranean Sky, which is an acoustic album, um, and now Surrender of Silence, which is the new rock album. So um, it's been a time of opportunity. Uh, adversity has presented other possibilities to me, should we say. And do you go into that immediately? Like when, when things start to shut down in March of 2020, and I believe Party of Tour was cancelled or put on hold. Right, yes. yeah. Do you just go home and say, okay, let's do this, let's do that? I mean, is that... Because I get the feeling that some of these projects might have not happened had it not been for the pandemic. Well, um, if something happened. Um, we were halfway through a North American tour and then America just closed down and, and my wife and I, we got the last um, flight back from Philadelphia. The band flew back uh, the day beforehand, we stayed behind to spend some time with friends and to apologize to people. And then once we were back, I started doing um, live things to camera, um, playing live, very often acoustic guitar. Um, we did 60 videos of, of, of various things, you know, chat tracks, talking about some of the of the things that people knew um, from my past. And then uh, we had a kind of dialogue with fans and um, we asked them what tracks they would like me to talk about. And very often they would be Genesis ones, sometimes they would be solo ones. And so I was able to talk at length and stay in touch with people in, in a virtual way so that there was an ongoing connection, uh, a bit like you would dial into your favorite 
channel if if that's what you were into of course there were a number of albums and uh, to support the the recorded stuff i did quite a number of track chats with that as well so those are, are ongoing there are things that are being released even now to accompany the new album there are um, there are some videos some of them are out there um, there will be others that are being done as, as we're talking and, and also a kind of guided tour of all things in the past, present and future with me. So um, I've um, been presenting perhaps my, my own stuff in a way that I wouldn't have done before. So um, uh, it, it's quite strange, isn't it? First of all, when you're addressing a camera <laughs> and you're thinking, normally you're having a conversation with someone, but suddenly you're befriending the camera and um, you're taking a trip down memory lane in some cases and other, in other ways. You, you, the, the road less traveled, the new stuff, presenting that and saying, oh, the reason for this is because I love, for instance, Russian orchestration. And here's a track that's influenced by that on the new album or, or a trip to the Orient in, um, in the imagination with a track like uh, Shanghai to Samarkand. Um, uh, and then a, a trip to Ethiopia, which we undertook a few years ago, which we turned into a track. My wife and I wrote this stuff. The more imaginative travelogue type stuff, my wife and I, we tend to write this sort of stuff together. Uh, and then I extend the writing team to include um, the people I'm working with. Roger King, keyboard player and musical director of my touring band. And he brings his skills to bear on it as, as, as a a classically trained cathedral organist, stroke arranger, stroke a film music, uh, a man as well. I mean, he, he worked on, on, on various Hollywood blockbuster movies, etc. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's a great all-rounder. I, I tend to be more uh, instinctive. He has more musical theory at his fingertips. And he's no stranger to the score sheet that we use quite a bit when we bring in other players, unless we want something spontaneous from them. Uh, and we involve those who improvise as well as those who prefer to have the ideas written out. So we work with different schools, it's different genres. I wonder, I was curious about your interest in world music. Yeah. And the fact that you love to travel. I don't know which inspires which. Does, does the music of Ethiopia come into effect because you've went, you've gone to Ethiopia, or do you go to Ethiopia because you like their music? Um, it's interesting. I wasn't really aware of what Ethiopian music was like until I was until I was there. Most of what I heard was not as primitive as you're probably thinking of something that's typically African. We would think in terms of drums, etc. There is a heartbeat of the place, and um, we found it really personified in the flight of an eagle that we saw from an, an outcrop. We put two and two together, we made it into wing beats. The music from Ethiopia that I heard was much more singer-songwriter orientated, and um, people were singing with a lot of passion, a lot of fast vibrato, in, in the voice. Um, in a way, it was closer to French music, chanson, 
I think. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the more primitive stuff that we were thinking would have been part of the roots of the place, occasionally I came across that. But very often it would be on a very, you know, amateur level and people just doing it just for fun. And there wouldn't be the, um, the expertise involved in it. But then I remember seeing a, a, a lyre player who had just four strings on his instrument and he was playing it in a, in a certain way and he was letting me play it. And um, at the same time as he was doing that, there was, um, it was an air, in an area that was very religious Christian with these sunken churches. Uh, the Lalibela area, and um, um, whilst that was going on, there was this a priest intoning into a into a microphone. So I would have loved to have just used what this guy did, but at the same time we had this kind of cross of cultures going on, and I could have used that. But people would have said, "Well, yeah, if you're making a documentary, that's fine," uh, but on record, you know, maybe it's one influence too many. So. We had to pare it down to what was essentially possible. And the, the track that you hear is essentially studio construct from um, different places and, and times. All of the drums on that, although they were um, extraordinarily tribal and extraordinarily powerful, they were all the drums on that track happened to be all programmed unlike some other tracks where we had the virtuosic work of people such as Nick De Virgilio, um, extraordinary drummer, and uh, Craig Blundell, uh, again, extraordinary drummer, and Phil Earhart of Kansas, extraordinary drummer. So we had the virtual stuff, and it's a bit like the man and the machine, or sometimes the woman and, and, and the machine. I, I embrace the technology, but also um, like to honor the human. So when you witness something like this in Ethiopia or wherever you are traveling, yeah. does the moment that you witness this, does the idea come in right there and then, or do you go home and reflect upon it and say, oh, remember that? Um, well, I think that in the main, I go back and, and, and reflect. But certain things, I mean, I'm one of the tracks we did uh, called Natalia, is entirely influenced by Russia. It's a Russian story. It's it's a Russian narrative, and um, I was already very familiar with Russian Russian classical music. Loved the work of Prokofiev, Tchaikovsky, Stravinsky, all of whom are part of the different um, musical scenes within the same song. Visiting Russia and playing there as a musician myself some of the, these ideas were already fully formed. On another level, when you're there, you realize that you're in, you're basically in a police state. You know, you're not, it's, there are no political freedoms. They have never known democracy. When you think about Rasputin, the man they tried to poison, shoot, drown, all the rest one can't help but think of Navalny and his present predicament and the fact that the man is so brave you know one man crusade against the system if he ever gets in power if he ever survives there's no guarantee that he would not behave in a despotic manner in, in the way that all of his uh, predecessors 
may have done. But on the other hand, you know, in terms of true grit, it's uh, the man has that in droves. That's for sure. Um, I'm going to step back to sure. your earlier years. You started playing the music and getting an appreciation for music at a really young age of two, I believe, when you started to play the harmonica. Yeah. And you still play the harmonica, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I do. Yes, yes, harmonica. And um, harmonica was something that my father did. Uh, my father could play a number of instruments, always just for fun. He could get a tune out of clarinet, bugle, um, one-finger piano, harmonica. And uh, for years before guitar, um, I talked him into getting me a, a chromatic harmonica. And then many years later, I, I heard blues and um, absolutely fell in love with the sound of blues harmonica and blues guitar. And I think blues is the, the musical arena where you had all the sonic developments, the use of distortion, the use of vibrato instruments, learn to talk. Instruments learn to scream, to sustain, to emulate the human voice and become something else um, beyond all of that. So um, I absolutely love what blues has brought to the rest of music. Without that, we wouldn't have the developments in rock that we've, that we've had. So it's been a huge influence on me and I still absolutely love it. I love the fact that there's freedom in blues to express yourself even if you don't know the tune, the the beauty of blues is that you can immediately become part of the ensemble, step out and do a solo. And I think that it's very wrong for people to dismiss uh, a blues and say, oh, it's just, it's primitive. It hasn't got many chords. It has no harmony, etc." That misses the whole point. The whole point is that it's almost like the equivalent of, of abstract art. Um, the, the form is the point, the spirit is everything, the spontaneous ability to be able to, to convey something and make it up on the spot, just the joy of hitting a note and letting it, letting it sing out, that's, that's the beauty of it. I know you were greatly influenced by the blues, blues players like Peter Green, yeah, and, and going to see people like him and John Mayo and Fleetwood Mac. Um, yes. Were you ever in a blues band? Like, I know that you did a blues album, but in the beginning, were you, were you ever in a blues band? I wanted to be in a blues band. When I first left school in the mid-60s, um, I really wanted to play a, a blues guitarist, harmonica player in an equivalent of, you name it, The Stones or Cream or John Mayle any of that stuff, uh, you know, Jeff Beck's stuff. And London was a great place to be at that time, but it wasn't really till the mid sixties that I became aware of the roots of blues more. Uh, Paul Butterfield with his mixed race band, um, which was an absolute revelation for me. Although I'd been playing harmonica all my life, I didn't know what he was doing and how he was making that sound and the control he exhibited which led me, you know, further back to the roots of that, to other harmonica players, Little Walter, Howling Wolf, 
there's so many uh, 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 great players who've worked with um, the early blues men, Amplified Harmonica, Muddy Waters, um, acoustic blues as well. I loved, I loved all of that. At the same time, you also had a great appreciation for classical music. Yeah. Did you study classical music uh, no, at school? I don't think I've ever studied classical music. I, I, I was, I'm a bit like a, a classical groupie. I wanted to dip in and out. We were taught to write music, but it, it was, it was uh, by rote. You know, I never really had the experience of reading it fluently. And so, um, but I loved the form of classical music. I, I loved Tchaikovsky. I became aware of Chopin. I became aware of Bach. Bach's music came to me via Segovia playing that stuff on the guitar. Music that had been written for violin and, uh, and cello, a little bit for the lute. Uh, but I, I, I loved that. I loved the, the changes and the, the complete mastery of form and, and the completeness of it. it, it the sound of Segovia playing on, on nylon guitar, I, I fell in love with from the very first note. I thought, oh, isn't this amazing that someone can do this on one instrument? This is, this is amazing. He's, he's being his own bass player here. He is his own orchestra. He is orchestrating as he, as he plays near the bridge. It's becoming another instrument. It's, it's, Yes, it's heading towards harpsichord, it's heading towards cello, it's heading towards all of these other things. I, I had a great appreciation of, of the art of Segovia, and I think Bach and, and Segovia were just absolutely made for each other. The reinterpretation of that work on guitar was extraordinary. So I put myself through those challenges and I've recorded some of those pieces. And so I, I wonder. I've got a great love of, of classical guitar. I mean, when you look at those two forms of blues and 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 then that the improvisation, the the ability to just play a solo whenever and yeah. come in whenever, versus the discipline of somebody like Segovia. I mean, those are two very different things, and yet you embrace them both, and in some ways, your playing reflects both of those. Yeah. Well, you see. Um... There was an album called, I think it was called Baroque and Blues, or Blues and Baroque, uh, the MJQ, the, the Modern Jazz Quartet, an album that was recorded either late 50s or early 1960s. I think there was this idea of perhaps in order to be accepted, you know, men performing in dinner jackets, and, and you know, DJs and, and all of that. They're both player-based mediums. So the similarities are greater than the different differences. Um, Bach actually, apparently, although we don't have the recordings to, to support this, was a great improviser, as was Handel. There was a tradition of that. It's only latterly that the, the world of classical became fixated on the idea of the score sheet, whereas it was a detail of the wider world of music that, that um, that he inhabited. That's that's what they did. They were great keyboard players. I guess they were the jazz players of their day. I can't imagine how easy it is to lift licks from a Segovia album. 
but I guess that's what you did. Well, I had Roger to steer me through the um, the changes, and um, and so I come at it from an emotional point of view. It's what is this music capable of that electric music is is incapable of. <laughs> Yes, you can move people with any instrument, it seems to me, in the right context. But nylon guitar, it's got this ability. It's it's a wide dynamic range. Tonally, it's very wide. And you have the ability to be able to vibrato. And if you use reverb, echo, you can place a distance. You can make it sound like a distant dream. You can make it sound like a percussion instrument up close like the like the flamenco players again they're different schools different take on what is guitar what what does it do what is its function and um uh that would be very different from jimmy Hendrix's approach to guitar where it would be in the main single line work whereas of course you're operating with a number of different harmonies within within uh, nylon guitar playing but I think that Jimmy had had an appreciation of a different forms of music and you can hear that with the burning of the, the midnight lamp you know or oil whatever the title was and you know that that thing where you have a blues man but I know that he he really you know he really dug King Crimson for instance um, but I think that Jimi Hendrix was a great writer within the blues framework and stretched it a lot but it, it's essentially a blues mind that's how I see it you've got that very raw emotional thing from them what do you classify yourself as oh, I don't know I just say I I make a noise for a living <laughs> I uh, well I'm, 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 I'm music's lover. I, I love music in just about all of its forms. There's something in there, in every form. You can dismiss something and then you'll find someone's done something. Ah, that's where it works. Somebody said to me the other day, I think I was doing an interview with somebody and they said he realized that the Eagles track, Hotel California, was actually based on a reggae rhythm. And I thought, well, you know, it's absolutely right. So country music meets California meets, meets reggae. Interesting. And so dismiss nothing. You know, do not retire the humble triangle. It has its, its moment. You'll, you'll hear it. I wonder, in in nineteen seventy, when you put the ad in in I guess it was a Melody Maker to. Um, I put to, ads in for five years. Yes. Okay, so I think the ad said, "Imaginative guitarist writer seeks involvement with receptive musicians, determined to strive beyond existing stagnant musical form music forms." Yeah. What? Where were you musically at that point? Is it the, did you want to get into progressive rock? Is that was that the goal or? Did you have an idea what that was? I realized at that time that music was changing. Up to then, 
um, I wanted to be purely a blues musician. Unfortunately, the blues boom died on me, and I don't think I would have been good enough at it at that time, to be honest. Um, but I had ambitions beyond it. I realized that music was becoming more driven by narrative. Bands that had writers who could produce great lyrics and great stories meant that it could run the gamut of things from social comment to philosophical stuff to telling um, bands like uh, uh, Procol Harum, you know, where it's bridging the gap between sea shanties and, and, and Star Trek. It's, um, yeah, wonderful stuff. And those sorts of bands tended to be able to one minute be a jazz band, the next be a rock band, be a folk band, um, be all sorts of things and have one foot in classical. And I expect a lot of these guys could play blues too. And music, as I say, was on the turn. Uh, rock's shoulders were becoming broader. And I wanted to have, I wanted to be a part of that. And knew that I thought if I could sketch in a number of styles, that'll be good enough for me. Luckily, Genesis combined a number of different influences. They were pulling in lots of different directions, from classical to rock, to music, concrete, to big band, to Tamil Motown, to Led Zeppelin. It was all part of what the band liked and wanted to, wanted to be like. But you didn't know that when you first joined, and I believe you were kind of hesitant when they initially offered you the, the gig. Yeah, I was hesitant because up to then, um, I'd been trying to form my own band and Genesis had their own way of doing things. And um, uh, immediately I, I was going to be living with them. So I had some kind of hesitancy because um, I was very young. I was just about to turn 21. And it's a bit like leaving home for the first time. There you are, you're living out of a suitcase. This is it, this is what we do. You know, we go off to, um, we're gonna go and live in the country and write an album together. Um, how do you feel about that? And I was working with people from very different um, social backgrounds. They'd been at private school. They'd been at Charterhouse, which is, you know, one of the, one of the English schools that has a history like Eton or Harrow, it's, it's that kind of thing where they were all taught to be very competitive. And um, it was very different to my background, which had been very laissez-faire. Phil Collins came from another background, another tradition entirely. He'd been at stage school, he'd made films, he'd been on stage singing uh, the part of the Artful Dodger in Oliver. That was his background. Yeah, and, you know, he 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 was he had learned to tap dance, to play drums, to sing, all of these things, lots of lessons, and his background. He he was more of a kind of everyman, more of a cockney, really. Um, uh, whereas you had the more posh side of the, the background that the, the Genesis had. They came from a more privileged background, perhaps. My upbringing was. Very different. I was I was a London Londoner. I I left school at sixteen. I'd done a number of different jobs 
five years of, of other jobs, whilst I was trying to form my own band, I eventually um, joined a band. We made an album a year before Genesis. I joined a band called Quiet World. Didn't do any gigs, but it, it was a studio construct. Genesis was very different. Genesis was, um, was already made in terms of they'd done two albums. I thought I could give them a harder edge. I thought if I can talk them into getting a Mellotron and a light show, we could make this, the presentation could improve to the extent where, you know, we could be a force to be reckoned with. Um, so when I read your book, that came across very strongly about your, your, your belief in the importance of getting a Mellotron and, yeah. and a light show. So I, I know you purchased the Mellotron from King Crimson or Robert Fripp. Yeah. Um, who I presume must have been, that band must have been a big imp influence on you but i wonder about the genesis guys yes but i wonder okay so the idea of the mellotron which is featured in watcher of the sky um yeah. how, why was the mellotron so important and where does the idea of the light show come like what made it the light show so important to you okay um part of what the deep the, the beatles were doing was based on mellotron you know, the opening of, of, of Strawberry Fields forever. It seemed to me that as soon as anything was played on the Mellotron, it sounded old as if it had its own history, that, that, that analog sound, that interpretation of a sound that tape gave it. I saw two bands using Mellotron live, one of whom was King Crimson. I was to befriend the, the Crimson guys, uh, Ian McDonald in particular, I got very close to. I spent time with Robert. There was the Moody Blues. I saw them at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970. And I thought, again, it gives a band um, a sense of, um, I could be listening to an orchestra. And um, so for orchestra, read Time Machine. So that was hugely important. And I, I knew that Genesis needed one. I just knew that, that to expand the keyboard arsenal would mean that you could have uh, a keyboard player who could play organ, could play piano, could you know make it sound like an orchestra. Um, we've got the RMI piano, he had the art synth, the art pro soloist, the monophonic synth, all of that. And I was as interested in the sounds that he made because if he could do that, we could parallel certain things we could have I could do tapping and he could do keyboard and we could do these things in harmony. So we could blur the lines, the distinction between what was guitar, what was keyboard. If you couldn't figure out what the sound source was, that was a very good idea in my book. How about the lighting side of it? What made you think that the lighting show was such an important part of what you needed to do? Well, I think, I, if I'm honest, it, it was King Crimson seeing Crimson live with they're very precise music. At times it would be very precise. Other times they would indulge in complete carnage. But for the precise moments when the light show was timed to coincide with the music, I realized what you're talking about is the power of the ensemble. If the ensemble is a correct regiment, we can make certain things happen. We can indulge in long form, we can hold the audience's attention. 
Um, and then, of course, Peter Gabriel not only understood all of that, but he did what Bowie later did, to be honest, you know, which was personify the music, to dress up, to live the songs, all of that. So you had something that, that became named for a short while before the, 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 the tag progressive was in there. Uh, we were known as theatrical rock. So that was it. If anyone wrote about us in New York, they said, these guys are theatrical rock. So that person who wrote that ad in 1970, did you have an idea of what you wanted to accomplish? What you saw your future to be? What your goals were? I I did in a way. I, I knew that... Um, um, I knew that what was possible in music had not been possible until that moment in time. I think part of the legacy of the Beatles was the fact that the Beatles start out as this R&B band at first. And the moment they've got the world's ear, it starts to expand into other forms. Um, they were mature enough to put down their instruments at times and let the orchestra take it. I think that that was a great leap of faith that paid off for them and benefited music hugely. To do that with a rock band, I think was harder. Or with Genesis, for instance, on one level, they were as ambitious as Beatles. On another level, there was a resistance to the idea of getting in anyone other than the band to play it. So, and including the present day. The idea of we should be able to do it all ourselves was part of it. I didn't share that ethos. I thought, no, if, if someone's limited and you want to write a flute part, why don't you get in someone who can, who can really do the job? So I would rather embrace virtuosity from afar rather than really just indulge what's merely local. Let's not just have local consciousness. Let's have... Yeah, let's make it global at least. Did the success? I, it's always difficult to tell the level of success one achieves from the outside. Uh, I obviously put Genesis on on a pedestal because I'm a huge fan. But when you were in the band, did it achieve the level of success that you had hoped that it would? I mean, it just it seemed huge, huge to me. Yeah, it it went way beyond my expectations. When I joined Genesis, I thought, oh, you know, this will. You know, I'll, I'll be with the band for about a year and then I'll leave and I'll do something else because I didn't really want to be controlled. Um, but um, I learned a lot. And what was interesting was when they'd taken on board my ideas, we started to professionalize each other, I think. We got better at certain things. The playing improved. The presentation improved. The quality of songs improved. And all that ambition, all that testosterone, it worked. We did tons of gigs. It got better and better. It got bigger and bigger. We were still young enough to be new faces on the block. That works. It was a slow burn. Uh, we didn't go immediately to hit single success. We had a hit single in 1973 with I Know What I Like from Selling England by the Pound. But... You know, that was a standalone, and um, there wasn't an orientation towards that. I have no objection to short form and hit singles 
not at all. But I also wanted the music itself to be ambitious. Let's try and work with these disparate forms. I love the fact that we were able to include humour in it as well. I, I was surprised at the level of success of the band and it afforded me a chance to do an album on my own and um but i but i knew i i knew i had to leave because um i was accused sometimes by the very same people who'd helped me to make the album i was accused of not giving the band everything so um i thought no politics and agenda is getting in the way of the music and i couldn't afford to have stillborn brain children i couldn't afford to be slapped down once I'd been the captain of my own ship. And um, even though I think that Genesis was a tremendous band, tremendous legacy, um, I think politically it was naive. And um, people were, let's put it this way, they needed to be able to record their own albums. They needed to be able to have that outlet. And um, they were worried about me being a monster success. They didn't want to create another Pete. And I think it's poetic justice that they created instead of that Phil, who managed to outsell everyone on the planet, <laughs> right. including the band that he played drums in. So there we are. There's, uh... I get the feeling that you're a shy person. In yeah. the book, you give me the impression that you're a shy person. Yeah. How how difficult was it to become the solo artist? Well, I think to be a solo artist, you have to have your helmet on. You have to um, take the knocks as well as accept the flowers when people give you them on stage, take the bows, take the knocks, take the criticism. Uh, bands are much more, should we say, unassailable. You know, at the end of the day, um, a young band out there, the young, the young gods. Yeah, if you don't like one guy, there's someone else. You know, there's you can vote for this one. It's like you know, pinups on the wall on, on a young girl's bedroom. You know, it's it's like oh. The way this guy looks like this, I mean, you know, who oh, don't like him, you know. Uh, when you're solo, there's nowhere to hide. And with acoustic music, there's even less of, of, of room to uh, escape to. But um, you have to go beyond all of that. It's difficult enough to establish yourself. But if you work with good people, and in many cases, great people, um, Part of my job is to bring those people in front of others and I realize that because I've had a certain degree of success and because I'm of a certain age and, and, and people listen to me, listen to what I'm saying, what I'm writing, I can bring other people to, to the fore. I mean, for instance, Amanda Lehman, who I've worked with recently uh, on, on, on record and live, She's just done a wonderful new um, album. Her, her debut album is, is spectacular and it's getting lots of interest. And I realise that's something I can do, you know, that, that we don't have to stick with all the old heroes. Um, there are some, some new faces that, that um, coming up. Uh, our album is produced by Nick Magnus um, and, uh, and Nick. It's done an extraordinary job on that. So, uh, and our own playing and sing, singing and writing, it's been extraordinary. So, 
to be part of her development and to be able to uh, it's it's a bit like being an impresario isn't it you know you're you know tonight presents this it presents that and um to be able to do that is part of of, of, of what i'm all about these days as well i mean i'm not winding down hardly but um isn't it great to be able to find other people now my only problem is i've got in in about five minutes i have another interview oh okay um okay can i just ask one more question of course so you have followed i i think in 82 you decided that you didn't want to follow a commercial success that's not the route that you want to go um and and at the same time over the many many years and you've done over 30 albums yeah. You have followed your instincts to do whatever you wanted to do, all different kinds of music. Yeah. Were you ever concerned about losing your audience by going classical, by going orchestral, by going rock, blues, whatever? Or does that never come into play? Like, What is your philosophy on that? Well, I think, um, I think it, it, it's possible to find an audience whether or not that audience remains with you um, to get a level of loyalty, I think that you need to be able to reinvent what you do, if not yourself. And um, I've been lucky that there has been an audience that has stuck with me through thick and thin. So that's part of, of um, that's part of it. I, I, I need to do these other things to, to nourish myself and i've been doing almost exclusively rock stuff and had a touring band now for for, for you know more than a decade uh, doing a relentless gig schedule that's part of what i do occasionally i'll do something else i do believe i'm being called thank you so much for doing this um, thank you thank you I so much much of my Brilliant. life listening to you i really appreciate the chance to talk to you lovely being great you take care Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Bye.